This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with retired Lieutenant General Mary Legere. General Legere, after 30 years of distinguished service with the Army, retired. In her last role, she was the U.S. Army's senior intelligence officer, where she commanded intelligence, security, and cyber organizations, including the Army Enterprise, 58,000 intelligence professionals in 140 countries, and its 17,000-person U.S. Intelligence and Security Command, known as INSCOM. She also led the development and implementation of the Army's multi-billion-dollar strategic plan. Since retiring, Mary has um, begun working as a senior executive at Accenture. At Accenture, she provides global secure digital mission analytics and agile development capabilities to U.S. national defense, intelligence, and cyber clients. General Ladier, it is an honor to have you on our show. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here. I read so much of your history and what you've been accomplished. Uh, it is amazing. So a senior executive, a, a general officer that led such vast amounts of people. Well, how would you describe your, your leadership style? Uh, well, I would say it evolved over time. And, and when you look at it uh, in the rearview mirror, you, you can kind of be um, a little bit amazed or overwhelmed that you've been around that long for that many jobs. But I would like to say that as my career developed from my initial days as a second lieutenant to when I assumed the positions um, that I culminated my military career with and now that I have at Accenture, um, I think I learned to be collaborative. Um, I think I learned to be very engaging uh, with the people that work with me because I recognize that leaders actually don't get much done if the people around them don't believe in what they're doing. So whatever the task, whatever the mission, whatever the job, the best resource I had was were the people that I was working with, uh, the people that I was supporting, uh, the commanders or clients who would have insights into the way they needed things done, which would inform kind of a direction. And then working with the team that I was um, leading and the team that I was part of, of getting their ideas, staying engaged with them. I would also say it's fair to say that I was, uh, I'm energetic. My subordinates in a loving way have <laughs> described me as uh, infectiously enthusiastic about everything. I'm a bit relentless and I also really try to get the best out of everyone. So I'm going to expect some high standards. So I think that's a lot, but that does kind of describe the pattern that I think I see you know, in myself. And, and if I were to ask my subordinates, say, what, what was it like? Um, not always easy, but I think we try to make it collaborative, engaged, with sort of unified ideas, unified purpose, unified vision, driving us forward. You've had a lot of different situations you've been faced with. Um, have you altered your approach or have you altered your approach because you're a woman leader versus a man? Um, so I'll take the first question. I think one of the greatest things about being in the military um, is that, and, and particularly those of us who are lucky enough to have a career over three decades is it's really a leadership lab and they are going to take, um, you know, a very young person and over a period of progressive assignments and education 
expose you to, you know, larger groups to lead. And through every evolution, you're going to reflect back on what worked when you were a direct leader of 50 to when you were more of an indirect leader of 58,000. And you learn, um, you know, candidly at the, at the lowest level what works so that you can apply that as you move up. Um, but there's certain things I had to let go of. And, you know, as a junior leader, I found myself, um, you know, I, if I could get it done faster myself, maybe I would do it myself. And that's a classic lesson that we teach even our privates and sergeants is that we have to learn to train others to execute the standard so that if we, as we delegate, we delegate with trust and certainty that the standard we're looking for can be accomplished based on our expressed intent. And so you do change over time, particularly and through the military, through the progression from, you know, organization at the, you know, a unit level or team level up to really large organizations. You have to adapt based on that scope and scale, but also based on the experience of people that are around you. Um, people often ask me, you know, what was your, you know, as you got toward the end of your career, were those the hardest jobs you ever had? And I, you know, I often reflect, I think the hardest jobs was when I was young and I really didn't have a lot of experience and I didn't know who to turn to. The, the longer I stayed, the more leadership development that I got, the more I realized how I could rely on others to fill gaps and to help me through dilemmas that I couldn't quite see clearly or reach out and get advice from others who would solve similar problems and get their insight so that I could take that step if it felt a little uncertain. Um, so I think, you know, I, I feel blessed to have, I didn't know I was signing up for it when I, when I signed my contract as a, you know, as a 19 year old ROTC cadet that I had signed up for one of the greatest leadership academies and I stayed with it for 30 years and every single assignment, every single job taught me something different about how to lead and hopefully how to lead more effectively the question of, you know, as, as a woman in the military, largely male dominant profession, um, did I have to do it differently? Um, I recognized at some point, I, I actually came from a family of five, uh, four boys and myself, raised by parents who were very gender neutral in terms of my development. They expected as much out of their daughter as they did out of their son. And my parents would admit they were my, their best hope for early retirement because I always did my homework. <laughs> And I was very on point for what I wanted to accomplish. But I did recognize that in, in organizations where you have mixed gender, you made less adjustment. And in organizations where you happen to be the only woman um, in, a, in, a, in an organization of um, either in a, in a culture where women are not, in, they're not accustomed to women being in leadership positions or in an organization where you're one of the first arrivers, um, you had to kind of check that and make sure that you were authentically yourself, um, but were mindful that you were dealing with some biases that you had to often communicate through, communicate um, over and work through. There were individuals who weren't overly receptive to a woman soldier, as you can probably imagine. And I found the best way to address it was directly um, and to be polite, but to be insistent that this was a place that I had actually earned my place. I was there with them. I was their teammate. And that I would earn their trust and respect by my performance. Um, and I would ask for that in return. So certainly I had to deal with that question, less so at, in Accenture. 
a global company that prides itself on inclusion and diversity. And, and honestly, one of the reasons I was so attracted to Accenture, it was it's clearly one of their most important corporate values to be a leader in this space. But in the military, I had to deal with it. And I think I deal, dealt with it effectively with candidly the help of what I would term would be 99% allies amongst the men who simply viewed good performance and merit as the most important you know, prerequisite for any position or any leadership opportunity that I had. It was not a question of my gender. It was a question of was I ready for the job and could I perform for that percentage that were not welcoming. Um, it comes with the territory and you, you deal with it directly and professionally, but you do deal with it. I heard you say it's important to bring Girl Scout cookies to uh, meetings when you have tough conversations. Can you tell us about that or, or, or the story behind that? Well, there is a shout out to to America and to the Girl Scouts on that. Um, I was in Iraq and I think that story relates to um, uh, I was in Iraq for 18 months as a senior, first as a deputy and then as a senior intelligence officer for the multinational forces in Iraq. And we worked, I had a very large intelligence enterprise to synchronize and orchestrate and lead. And I had a large group of people that worked for me directly. Um, and none of us slept much and the demands were great. And on a, every Sunday, um, we were the intelligence um, operations cell that supported the four-star, the theater commander. I would meet with my senior analyst and we would talk about the week and month and six months ahead. And it was really to talk about kind of the narrative that was out there. It was in, in the best way to describe it for civilians. It's like an editorial meeting where you are literally talking about the intelligence that you are working on, uh, that you will be uh, refining and presenting to the leadership. And those evenings were very creative. They were very intense, but you needed people thinking creatively. You also needed to understand that if you're together 24 seven, you want people to like each other. You want them to, to know each other as human beings. You want them to be there for each other. And so generally this is at the end of a long week and the beginning of another long week. And so there was a um, campaign in the United States where, you know, of course you would send to show troops that you cared, they would send us, communities would send us large quantities of anything they imagined that we needed from toothpaste to orange juice to Girl Scout cookies. And we could always tell when the Girl Scouts were selling because we would get cases and cases and cases of Girl Scout cookies. And I had a large organization of, at about, about 10,000 in the enterprise, but there were several thousand in my specific geographic area that were near me. And so we got a lot of Girl Scout cookies. So we would never start a meeting uh, without having a box in the middle because I always found that people were a little tired. If we got a little sugar high, that was good. It got to the point where the analysts got quite particular and if there was like several types that weren't there, um, someone would be sent out to get the full complement of Girl Scout cookies. But that's where that story came from. But keeping people fed um, and happy and is important to ensuring they're also creative under really stressful conditions. And that was kind of the spirit behind that. I'm speaking with General Mary Legere. After the break, we'll discuss developing your own authentic leadership style. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with retired General Mary Legere. 
General Lugier, what obstacles and challenges did you encounter on a personal level that you had to overcome for you to become an effective leader? I like that question because if we're all to be honest, we're all a little bit apprehensive when we're placed in charge of things. And, and sometimes that holds us back from actually seeking that opportunity. And I think just having confidence to know that this is a place you belong, you're well prepared for this. Um, and I can remember specifically there, there is a camp that the Army sends you to as an officer to basically um, provide a great deal of training, but also do an evaluation that is going to lead to, you know, whether you're going to be selected for active duty and ultimately which military occupational specialty, in my case, military intelligence, you, you would be assessed into. So it's an important place to be. And there is this great day that we all look forward to called Recondo Day. And it's essentially outward bound on steroids where they're placing you through obstacles and you're flying through the air and you're doing obstacle courses and you're repelling and you're doing things that natural people that have normal levels of fear would say, well, these aren't particularly comfortable. But as a bunch of cadets that are heading to be officers in the military, you've had some experience with these things before. You're actually excited about it. Um, but there is going to be an obstacle during the day that's probably not going to thrill you. And I can remember there was one, it was like, I think it was, a, I'm going to, I'll be corrected by a thousand people listening, but it was a rope drop and you had to climb up maybe 50 feet and then basically grab onto a rope, slide down this um, rope slide and hopefully land in the water without running into the end of the rope. And I remember thinking, you know, you can't show fear here because this is a pretty simple task. But I was watching and observing how different people, men and women, were managing that. And some people joke and some people are quiet, but everybody's focused because we're all going up and we're all going to do that. And so reflecting on what's the biggest thing you have to overcome, everyone is going to be given a new, you know, I was often given a new opportunity or given options on a new opportunity. And my first instinct would be, am I ready for this? Am I prepared for this? And I had to really create a way to work through, am I ready for this? Am I prepared for this? So that I would take those opportunities. And I had to do that very early on in my career when I was being offered positions that were coming a little faster than my rank would have suggested. And I felt a little bit uncertain. And I remember balking at one. And I was kind of mad at myself after that. And my self narration to myself and something that I asked friends of mine to hold me accountable to was, I will never turn down a job because I don't think I'm prepared for it. I will make sure in the ensuing years that if there is a job that I'm seeking, I will do everything in my power to prepare well. So if I'm given the opportunity and the privilege of it, I will walk through the door without so much uncertainty. Then once through the door, I figured out how the best way to fill those gaps. It was really to reach out to everybody that have ever had those jobs, the people that I was working with. And in that first six months, just get as comfortable as I could with the new position. So it's kind of a long answer, but I would say the number one obstacle in having navigated, and I'm going to guess maybe 35 job changes over the course of a military career and a um, now a civilian career where my job description has changed a few times is as it changes and I'm feeling a little bit anxious, am I ready for that next step up or that next step over or possibly a step down to learn something new? What's my mental frame in terms of how I overcome whatever anxiety I might have? And I talk 
and mentor a lot of young people when or in, in mid-level careers who are really hesitating on whether to make a next step. And I see a little bit of myself in them, that they're hesitating because they're uncertain. So I would suppose that, that is the most recurrent thing for me that I've often, I know it's part of my makeup and I know it's something that I'm going to have to work my way through. And I have developed techniques over my, you know, many years and many job changes to help me address that. And, and maybe that's helpful for some of our listeners today. In the last segment, we talked about leadership style. We just uh, discussed overcoming personal obstacles. Was there a point where you found your authentic leadership style, where you found it that comfortable nature to be who you are? Was there an event or, or something that, that kind of crystallized it? I, I think there was a point where I was getting counseled um, by, by an officer that went on, to, went on. He was my boss at the time, several echelons off, and there's an annual report that we get in the military uh, that sort of sums up how you've done and what your potential is for that next level of responsibility. And we covered the good things. The job had gone well. It was a really important milestone position for me. And there were things as a senior officer that he liked. And then there were things that he thought I should improve on. And and I remember some of it felt a little close to home because I wasn't ever going to be him. I wasn't ever going to be, you know, my husband was a phenomenal officer, but he had his own leadership style with his soldiers and based on who he was. And I remember in some case, the advice was you need to be a little bit about less, less, less than who you are. And, and thinking about that, I, I didn't push back with him at the time, but I remember thinking, well, he's giving me advice on things that he thinks are really going to help me. I'm not sure if I abandon that approach, maybe caring too much, uh, being overly empathetic. Um, might not always be appropriate, but it is one of the ways that I connect. And it's not a, it sounds a little um, maybe out of context that why would any, any leader encourage their young rising leader to be, you know, less humane or less empathetic. He was, he was asking me to find a balance with that and to ensure that I mean objectivity. Um, but he was also saying, you know, you, you use your humor sometimes. We have to be careful with that. And I thought those are important pieces of advice, but there are a lot of who I am. So I'm going to have to find that balance. So I didn't completely reject what he said, but I also recognized I had a leadership style that made me comfortable, um, that helped my teams come together, um, that helped me get the best out of each of my people, which I, which I, you know, is probably the most important leadership lesson. My mother, who I still think was the best leader I ever worked for, um, you know, she was a teacher and she said, your job as a leader, and she was talking to me in context of being, you know, a captain of a basketball team. She said, your job as the leader for the coach is to get the best out of everybody. Find that. Not everybody's equally talented. Everybody brings something different. But find that and have those people feel like they're full contributors to the team. No stars. Everybody contributes. And that was something that I held on to as a young officer. And I think, it, you know, I've tried to keep that as part of who I am. And I felt like I was getting a little bit of pushback from this specific boss. Maybe I just misunderstood it or filtered it incorrectly. Um, but I did make a decision that I, I needed to always be comfortable with who I was, that I wasn't going to be the, the model of what anybody else thought was necessary. And that would have to be enough. And if I gave everything I could, 
and I did everything I needed to be, that would have to be enough. I, I needed to be myself. So there was a point where I had the, um, I got some pushback from somebody I, I, I did admire greatly and do admire still today. Um, but he was asking me to be a little bit more like my male peers in some case. And, and in, in this case, it just wasn't who I was. You were the commander for over 58,000 intelligence officers. What is the most important type of decisions you can make of a leader of such a large organizations? I mean, and how do you approach that decision? Decision by committee or, or, you know, do you get feedback? Well, to clarify that, I was the I was the senior intelligence officer of an enterprise of fifty eight thousand. So you're not really command in 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 the truest sense. You're not in command of that, but you are. You have uh, indirect leadership responsibility to lead that enterprise. And at that level, probably the most important thing that you have had to have mastered on the way up is the ability to empower and entrust other equally or more competent leaders who work for you to do their job based on a unified understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, unified purpose, unified intent, a shared sense of priority, and a shared sense of values. And so you lead in an indirect way very differently. Um, You lead through leaders that you work hard to develop. And you learn that as you move up through the military, as they just every three years consistently increase your level of responsibility and the, the size and scale of the organizations and enterprises that you have responsibility for. You become an indirect leader, but you spend an intense amount of time with those, you know, those subordinate leaders who are incredibly skilled and have an incredible amount to offer you in terms of how you're going to all collectively go forward. So I would say, you know, I, reflected on the question um, that you, you asked and anticipated it, you know, are you making these decisions alone? Or are you making them by committee? If you're an inclusive leader of an enterprise and you have, you are surrounded by leaders that you respect, you, you may have a few leaders who are still developing and maybe their advice isn't spot on all the time. You bring judgment and experience to that input from your entire team of leaders and ultimately, you make the decision generally with their support. You know, if there is large dissent um, over something, um, then generally, because you know these are the people that are going to have to execute it, you as a leader have to address that dissent and find your way through co-creation to something that is going to be acceptable. That doesn't mean you lead by committee. That means you lead to, to drive and, and develop consensus. You're open to really divergent ideas. I mean, I have had, I've had a three-star in that position. My two stars come in and tell me, you know, the emperor has no clothes and we don't agree with the decision that you're, we presume it is, is positive. And I really had to step back and listen and understand that they had better understanding of what was going to sell on the street. And I don't mean in a sales way, but whether the, the decision that I thought was the right one was actually going to be executable. And they were absolutely spot on and correct. I could have forced that decision through from the position that I was in, or I could respect the people that I worked with, the people that I led with, the people that I was responsible for, and listen to their years of experience and have them inform a better outcome. And, you know, and I, I reflect on that often. You know, I was pretty certain I had the right idea, but it, it took a lot of courage from these two individuals to come in 
and, you know, come in together and say, ma'am, you know, we just don't agree with the direction that you're heading and let's tell you why and let's talk about a different way of approaching this. And I took the time to listen and really back up from a position that I, I thought I was fairly secure on. So I think when you're in a position leading an enterprise, unless you're absolutely brilliant, best to listen to all the talent that you've assembled or that's been assembled around you and get as many great ideas as possible so that you're not surprised by any outcome that you hadn't anticipated, that you have a plan that everybody's excited about and can see themselves in and can help you execute. Um, because making a decision is just half of it. You, know, you then have to go out and execute it and see it through. And that's going to require the spirit and, and efforts of all of us. Now, in the military, we ask, often ask ourselves to do things that are unpleasant. We, we all know when those moments come. And I think in business as well, there are things that are just really difficult and there are no good, great choices. And you make a decision and we execute those together in good faith. But I think if you've allowed people to express their concerns when a hard decision is made, you know, they feel better about it and they don't lose faith or trust with you. So I, that's kind of the way I've always approached it. I'm speaking with retired General Mary Legier. Next, we'll talk about her dedication to national security. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with retired General Mary Legier. Mary, earlier we talked about um, your role at Accenture and, and a couple of other incidents that happened along the way throughout your career but we haven't really talked about why you dedicated your entire career to national security and why it's important to you. Well, thank you. Um, I think it, it stems from what I read as a child, believe it or not. Um, my father and mother were both teachers. Um, my father eventually got into public television, um, but was an educator in his career. And he took the development of his children fairly seriously, um, not in a, you know, dictator or tyrant way, but he would figure out what we were interested in. And in order to inspire us to read well and to write well, he would personally select our books for us. And I went through a series of things I was interested in um, based on what I thought I would want to do in my career. But at a certain point, and my father kind of thinks it was about when I was a teenager, I, I went from wanting to be sort of correspondent uh, to somebody that was very interested in history and national security reasons known only to God. I don't know why, but it was very interesting to me how the world worked and I wanted to travel. I grew up in New Hampshire. My father and mother took us around the United States and we didn't have a lot of international travel opportunities, but I had this aspiration to travel and see the world and see history as it was being made and figured out whether there was a profession that would allow me to, to do that with my life. And it was when I got to the University of New Hampshire and I was studying political science, um, I ran into a professor on the way out of class. I was 17 or 18 years old, but I, I sort of benchmarked this as the point when I knew I wanted to be an intelligence officer and be involved in national security. Um, he, he said to me, he said, Mary, I understand you're, you're kind of auditing ROTC at this point. And I said, yes, I'm sort of interested in seeing, you know, whether I'm, I might you know, pursue a commission. He said, well, you know, you can be an intelligence officer in any of the services. And he went on to explain that he was a professor of Soviet studies, um, Soviet Union was still there then, um, 
but he was also a naval intelligence officer, um, a reserve, and he was about 20 years into a, a very distinguished career as a naval intelligence officer. And in the 10 minutes I had with him, that was where my profession and my professional aspiration was formed. He talked to me, this was before the internet, so, or a lot of internet, where you could go online and look up anything. But he talked to me about the fact that each of the services had an intelligence core, and that if I did well in ROTC and I worked hard in school, I could compete to get into that. And that would be a close corollary to being able to do work with the State Department, which is the direction I thought I wanted to head. Um, But he said, I think you'll find intelligence work really fascinating, and the opportunity to contribute to national security will be something that you will absolutely love and enjoy and never regret. I credit him, um, you know, Dr. Trout, for that conversation with just an average freshman coming out of one of his very big classes for taking the time to just open my eyes to something. Maybe we would have had the conversations a few years later, but maybe that would have been too late because I did need to work hard in school. I needed to work hard in ROTC in order to be competitive to get into the Intel Corps. And I have loved every minute of it. And it has, so people have said, why did you stay so long in the military? It's because every assignment led to some other part of the world or some other discovery that I was curious about and that I felt I could contribute to. And when I made the choice to leave or when I was, you know, I reached the end of my career and I made the choice to find the right second chapter, I really did look for a company that was doing sort of really innovative, groundbreaking work in national security. But in Accenture's case, had solved a lot of the problems that we saw in national security out in the commercial sector. So I was very deliberate in my choice of what uh, and delighted that Accenture was kind enough to accept me. But I was very deliberate in seeking a company that had been doing really impactful things that needed to be solved in the world, but was also bringing them into the national security sector. And they were problems I knew needed to be solved so I could carry on my long career and continue to serve in a different way. And I've really been lucky. You know, every day, you know, you're lucky if you can find work that is your passion because life isn't really about work then it's about just things that make you passionate and I feel like you know since I was 17 18 years old I've been on a path of working on things I care about with people I care about with impacts that matter um, that contribute to the security of this country and security of other countries around the world so felt very very fortunate and I think back the serendipitousness of that conversation and and it should be sort of a message to all of us You know, you never know when you say something, if it's going to change someone's life. And and I really think that conversation changed my life. The defense and intelligence mission is huge. Like you mentioned, huge impacts that really can make a difference. When you have to make a tough decision or provide feedback to somebody that is not pleasant, do you have any lessons learned or any stories you can tell? Um, yes. Um, and I actually taught my people this because I can get very passionate in my opinions and I'm an extrovert at times and I'll think out loud and then my introverts will retreat. And there was a great two star who went on to be a four star who I consider, you know, when you think about thanking God for putting great people in front of you to teach you and to mentor you and train you, I consider this general officer one of the finest people I've ever had the chance to work for. Um, but he was, you know, the commanding general of a armored 
Cavalry Division. I was a young officer, and he was telling a story of a day when he thought he had all the answers, and he put a plan in place, and the plan didn't turn out so great, and it was an actual maneuver, and it didn't end well for anybody, and it was an exercise, so there, <laughs> no one died in the creation of the story. Um, but his mentor pulled him aside, and his mentor said, you know, that that was very interesting. And then he paused, and then he said, have you ever thought about doing it this way? And then he went on to explain maybe a better approach. And the general told us this story kind of as a way to help us understand that if he ever told us to do something that we really disagreed with, there was a way to disarm him. (laughs) Just raise your hand and say, hey, sir, pause. That was very interesting. Pause. Have you ever thought about doing it this way? And it basically, you know, you know, dissent is coming, but you know it's coming from a thoughtful place. So I taught my people that, who would often tell me, man, you know, you get your energy just overwhelms us and we don't get to express ourselves. And I said, okay, well, then I'm going to give you this technique. When I asked, does anybody have any, I, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Raise your hand and say, ma'am, that was really interesting. Pause for a fact. Have you ever thought about doing it some way differently? One, it would make me laugh. Two, it would also give me a chance to pause to say what's coming is going to be the absolute opposite of what I just said, but it's coming from a place of belief, passion, and goodness. And so learning how to accept criticism, learning how to not be defensive about it, giving your people techniques, if you know, like one of my you know, I get very energetic and they think there's no way we're ever going to talk her out of this. But that was a technique that I taught um, my analysts and I've taught my staffs and I've taught my subordinates. And I'm like, look, if I start to feel like I'm overpowering you, just put your hand up and just start with, ma'am, that's interesting. And then say it together. Pause for effect. But have you ever thought about it? And I think leaders can help um, one keep that humanity in their decision process. But two, I, I never forgot that. And it, it it's worked for me a thousand times. And I can say that I've often laughed as we were heading into the criticism, but then focused really clearly on what that person was bravely trying to tell me about this idea that is probably not the best. You know, there's a famous quote um, that culture eats strategy for breakfast uh, um, by the legendary um, uh, consultant and writer, Peter Drucker. I don't think he meant that strategy wasn't important, but rather a a powerful and empowering culture was a sure route to organizational success. Do you agree with that? Oh, I do. I mean, I think they, you know, it's not one or the other, it's both, right? It's and. And I think that when you particularly if you have a strategy that may be creating great discomfort or change, um, which is exciting, but is also going to be really unsettling, that you have to pay attention to the culture of your workforce and be very mindful of how they'll receive it and ensure that the strategy, the culture, they're aligned. And it may require you to actually think about the culture and what it, what the impacts that it's going to have and what changes uh, you're going to have to introduce and you know we see this right now every day as as organizations are grappling with pivots into digital or in the commercial world pivots into post digital um if you if your culture and your workforce is uncertain or 
doesn't believe in the direction you're going in, you're not going to be successful. So defeating, not defeating, um, helping change the culture through literacy and education is something that I think a lot of companies, a lot of really successful organizations um, really spend time with, is if the culture just needs to be tweaked, it's probably have some faith in your people through education and engagement of helping them see a different way of thinking about things, having them, you know, having it marinate for a bit, but then being decisive about moving. Um, I think it's really important. I, I see people trying to bring in constant change without paying attention to it. And it's generally a recipe for failure. I see the most brilliant strategies that don't pay attention to the culture of the workforce um, lost in that, just even those initial salvos of trying to get it launched. So I absolutely think those two ideas need to be together all the time. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aline Black, and today I'm talking with retired General Mary Ledeer. Coming up, we'll find out what Mary's advice is to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with retired General Mary Legere. Mary, you've had such a long, distinguished career in the military. Now you work for Accenture. You shared how excited you are and being part of that culture and the mission there. Tell us about your current role, the mission at Accenture, and any wisdom you would have wished you had when you transitioned from the culture of a military culture to private sector. Right. Uh, well, one, I feel like when I went into the military and got into military intelligence, I feel like I got an all, all day past the Disneyland. And I don't want to make that sound uh, trivial or superfluous, but I so enjoyed everything about the military. You know, I reflected back and was in it for 34 years and really only had one job I didn't love. And I really only had one boss I didn't really find a way to just, he was like the best person I ever worked for. Um, and actually really look back on my experience with this one boss that was just a little bit too much of a micromanager for my, at my age, I, I wanted more freedom, I think. Um, but it, it helped me reflect on, wow, I don't think he's doing to, this to me on purpose. I need to watch this in myself. So ultimately that was a really good experience. And I had to fight when I would see traits of that, and I'm sure my subordinates who are, might be listening might say, well, ma'am, you needed to work harder on that. Uh, so I never had a bad job in the military. And I have to say, I just feel like uh, divine providence led me to Accenture. I, I, I had not had a lot of experience with Accenture, but a colleague who had preceded me from the military uh, recommended me to the leadership. And I was really looking for, first and foremost, an opportunity to continue uh, to be part of a really dynamic national security team. Second, as the G2 of the Army, and really for the last 10 or 15 years of my career, much of what was difficult for us was the integration of data, the integration of systems that were never meant to be interoperable, the desire to create hyper-connectivity and to overcome technology choices that we had made, not out of ignorance, but those were the options that were available and we were coming into an age of seamlessness and boundarylessness that we saw on the commercial side. But the Department of Defense, you know, had some sunk costs and some technical debt, and they were fighting their way toward that. And I wanted to go to a company that was leading in this space 
that was leading, but also knew it had an obligation to contribute to national security. It's easier on the commercial side in some cases because we don't have the massive amounts of global interoperability at multi-level security and multi-domain dimensions to consider. Um, nothing easy about like constructing the enterprise for the financial sector. So before everybody gets excited, I recognize it's really complex for the transportation or energy industries. But there's a level of complexity in national security organizations that are transnationally linked. That is fascinating and confounding and requires our best thinking. And so I saw the company that had really foundations and was leading that conversation on the commercial side and then hope they had a national security team on the other side of the transom that was really just focused on bringing those best ideas in. In some cases, Accenture's ideas at the time I joined were were a little bit too aggressive for where Department of Defense or my colleagues in Intel were. Um, but now we're in this incredible period of um, progress and growth. And so, one, I just feel lucky. I don't know what led me to this. I had a friend who made an introduction, and I got to meet the CEO or the CEO at the time, uh, John Goodman, now our CEO. And he was, uh, you know, I'm so grateful that he took the chance on me, and I joined the team. And then one thing that I was surprised and delighted with was what I loved about the military, what I am proudest of are all the teams I've been on. I really can't remember in many cases everything we did in every place I've been, but I know the feeling of great teams. And when I came into Accenture, a culture of a gigantic global company that operates like a bunch of small teams, I got that same sort of spirit. And I was valued from the day that I came in. Um, they had so much to teach me about business and about you know, how that entire process worked and they're still teaching me and they're patient. Um, but what I could bring was my understanding of my sector, my understanding of where my friends that I had left from the military, what help they were looking for in the intelligence community. And I was able to come on these multidisciplinary, talented teams, multi-generational. They're just as focused on national security and just as crazy about that mission as I am. So that didn't surprise me, but it just delighted me. I just feel like I'm the luckiest person in the world from a professional perspective. I've not had a bad job since I was a lifeguard. You know, I'm hoping that'll be the case until I stop doing this. But I, I guess what I would say is for those that are making the transition, if you really love national security work or you love the work you're doing, seek to continue. If it's time for a pivot to do something else, um, understand, take stock of how many different things you were asked to do in the course of your career uh, with the government and understand you have skills that you probably can't translate immediately into what's you're seeing in the job descriptions, but you're going to do fine just by bringing your energy, your passion, your discipline, and your willingness to do anything to help the team succeed. Um, and so it's really been an easy transition to be candid I know how grateful I am to my Accenture mentors for all their patience, my mentors in the other companies and industry who have also shared, you know, their experiences and are so generous in trying to talk about the best solutions for the government and for the intelligence and national security communities. And I feel grateful to be with such principled people. Um, so I guess that's, that would be my answer. So you mentioned um, you were a lifeguard. 
Was that your first job? What was your first job? Um, I took, I, my parents did not believe in allowances. <laughs> so I took any job that I could get in my little town. But uh, no, I was a babysitter. Uh, having had four brothers, most of the families in the neighborhood wouldn't leave their kids with my brothers, but they would leave their kids with me. And I was a paper person. I delivered, delivered newspapers. Uh, and then in high school, got the best job ever uh, as a lifeguard for five years with my best friends from high school. So we uh, we taught the youth of Southern New Hampshire how to swim um, and had a great time, but loved that job. And then it was a little bit of an adjustment. Um, I had that job all through college in the summertime when I wasn't at um, military training. The first summer that I was actually an adult, I graduated from college and I was in the Army and I was in training out in Fort Huachuca. I realized it was the first summer in like seven years that I had to wear long pants. This <laughs> is really bothering me. I'm like, why am I not in a bathing suit? Um, but in any event, I had to let it go. But uh, yeah, I've never had a bad job, actually. Probably, especially in Arizona, it came to mind. Well, <laughs> What a career advice would you have to give somebody who wanted to follow in your footsteps? Um, and do you ever mentor? Um, I do. Um, actually, I am the chairperson of a foundation that is dedicated to helping young people who have an interest in national security or in the intelligence community. Um, it's called the National Military Intelligence Foundation. And it, it's not one that I, I created. It's one that I volunteered for as soon as I got out of the military. I wanted to help it as a mentor. So young people could reach out and say, look, I'm at college. I don't know what to do. Or I'm in high school. I, you know, what should I study? Um, I don't think I can go in the military. Is there another route into the national security? So I give this advice all the time. And, um, you know, the first thing I would say to young people is whether it's national security or anything, you know, if there's something that you see that you think you're interested in, then have that existential 18, you know, 17 year old, 18 year old conversation with someone that has landed in that profession and have them share their experiences. So you can confirm if this is something that you want to go after and ask for that advice. So, you know, are there things I should do to prepare? Are there courses of study that would matter more than others? Um, are there lifestyle choices? Frankly, you know, one of the things we have to talk to young people about is, you know, when you come into the national security community, you're going to have a clearance and you're going to have a social media presence that will be greatly scrutinized by our adversaries. So let's make good choices early. And, you know, let's think about um, if you're going to ask when you're 22 to have access to some of the most important secrets in our country, um, how do we behave to gain that trust? So let's think about this. Are we responsible enough for that responsibility? And that's not meant to be ponderous, but it is meant to say everything matters. And so I, I would say, first and foremost, seek out people that are in your profession. And the wonderful thing, there are many downsides of social media, but the wonderful thing that delights me is when I have a few minutes in a day and can go check on LinkedIn, I will invariably have two or three either high school, college, or military people seeking to connect to say, could you talk to me about your career? Or ma'am, can I ask you about X or Y? And if I'm not the right mentor for these people because I'm a little aged, I will connect them. 
um, because I think talking to people that have gone on the road before um, makes it real. And my dad taught me this. He would take my brothers and I to colleges when he would make trips as part of his job for PBS. He would take us along. And I asked him one time, I said, other than hanging out on the lawns and going to bookstores, what's the point? He said, I want you to envision being in college. <laughs> and I want you to understand this is a place that, you know, high school and junior high school will be boring. But I want you to see how exciting it's going to be if you work hard and you can get to college. And so I think talking to people that have gone before and then really making sure it's not, not making sure, I guess, um, you know, testing the waters to see if what you're hearing from a bunch of people that are in the profession appeals to you because there's so many choices of what you can do with, with your, with your life. Um, and that's where I'd start. I'd start by just finding human beings that are really enthusiastic about it and just having the courage to ask them, you know, if you're a little bit shy about asking for stuff, you can always send people notes, people will respond. And, you know, for those out there that are listening that are, you know, thinking about a career in intelligence, uh, we're very committed to playing it forward. So if you, you know, want to connect, you know, go to the National Military Intelligence Foundation, ask for a mentor, we'll get in touch or send me an email and we will get you in touch with somebody that can talk to you about a potential career path. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. Our guest today has been retired General Mary Legere. General Legere, I just want to thank you for your service to our nation over the 30 years and sharing your personal journey and some extremely valuable advice. Well, thank you so much today and thank you to all your listeners. And um, thanks for sharing this kind of information with, with young and old folks that are considering careers in, in national security. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday.